For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today we have an interview with Kevin J. Anderson, New York Times bestselling author of more than 100 novels. Anderson's latest novels include The Edge of the World and Enemies and Allies. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. This is Kevin J. Anderson, and whenever I'm not reading or writing, I enjoy listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Welcome to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today, my guest is Kevin J. Anderson, New York Times bestselling writer. Anderson's latest novels include The Edge of the World and Enemies and Allies. In addition, The Winds of Dune, Kevin's latest collaboration with Brian Herbert, will be published in August. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. I hope I can give some advice your people would like to listen to. Great. Well, I just wanted to jump in. Your new novel, The Edge of the World, the first in your new Terra Incognita series, features sailing ships, sea monsters, and nautical legends. I wonder what appealed to you about this new world and setting that kind of sparked the idea for the story. Well, I've, I've always really been interested in like the, the Sinbad adventures and the nautical legends of the Leviathan and the Kraken and, and uh, stories about sailing off the edge of the world. And, and I loved looking at these old maps where they didn't they hadn't explored all the world yet, so they would just mark places with, like, here be monsters or, or terra incognita, which is what it means. And I, I just, I invented a fantasy world that looks very much like our our Age of Discovery, with Prince Henry the Navigator and Balboa, the great uh, sailing ships and explorers. But it's a fantasy world, so I was able to wrap it into uh, the Crusades, too. So it's basically two opposing continents. Uh, and two opposing religions that are at war, and they each send their their explorers out looking for basically the the Holy Grail or, or Prester John, a mythical ally that they want to uh, find and bring back to join the war on their side. A long time ago, I was uh, fascinated by the legend of Prester John, which is one of the uh, most enduring legends back during the time of the centuries of the Crusades, that uh, the people believed that there was another Christian kingdom on the other side of Africa or somewhere over there that, that we hadn't explored yet. And that was part of the reason why Prince Henry the Navigator sent out his explorers to go around Africa to see if they could find Prester John's kingdom. He supposedly had the Holy Grail and the Fountain of Youth and, and insert anything else that they could make up then. But the, the idea was that since the, uh, the Muslim armies were sweeping up from northern Africa and going across to the Iberian Peninsula, that if they could find this other ally by sailing around the world and encountering another um, the, the land of Prester John, then they could use him and get his great armies and powers and come back to to defeat the the enemies that are coming across. I use that as a as a springboard for a fantasy world that maybe there really is another kingdom. And I got got my maps and and develop my own fantasy thing because if you do a real historical thing. 
you're you're very much bound by intensive details set in the whatever 13 or or 1400s but also there are so many different conflicting reports of historical accuracy that uh it really ties your hands as a writer and i'm i'm more interested in in uh telling a compelling story with great characters instead of uh, researching the different ways of tying knots aboard a sailing ship. Sure, sure. I'm curious with with this background and setting. Did you find yourself in this situation doing more research than you normally do for the novels that you write, or was it about the same? Well, this was a different kind of research because I'm primarily known for writing big science fiction things. So I'm I'm uh, my degrees in astronomy and physics, and I've got all kinds of background in in planets and solar systems and nebulas and, and uh, setting it in a science fiction mindset, I already speak that language. So shifting to fantasy, although I, I have done a couple of other fantasies in my career, but shifting to this big fantasy, suddenly um, I need to know more of a different language. It's almost studying um, historical things and, and trying to, to comprehend all the different kinds of sailing ships and how they're rigged and how sailors work on them and and fortunately, I have some friends who are more expert in it, test readers, so they could point to things that were were not completely accurate, especially since I live up in the Rocky Mountains, so there's not too many sailing ships around me when I can go and look around. Uh, I was wondering, in, in coordination with the publication of Edge of the World, you did something very interesting. You organized a group of professional musicians and wrote lyrics based on Edge of the World in collaboration with your wife, Rebecca Moesta, and you recorded a music CD. I wonder if you could talk about how that project came about, and I wondered, had you always planned the CD, or, or what sparked that idea for recording a, a CD? Well, I can probably summarize it in one line. That this is probably the coolest project I've ever worked on. That I've always been a music fan. I've always listened to progressive rock music or rock music while I'm writing. And by putting this together, I've got some of my favorite musicians have come to play on the CD that I, I wrote the lyrics for with, with my wife. So I'm just doing this total fanboy geek out, having... Uh, the lead singer from Dream Theater, James Labrie, and I've got all the Dream Theater CDs, and I've seen them in concerts, so now he's working on this CD with my music on it, and it's just really the coolest thing. And, and John Payne, the lead singer from Asia, is on there. Lana Lane, one of my favorite uh, rock female vocalists, is on there. Uh, Michael Sadler, the lead singer from Saga, he's he's one of our singers. we got uh, David from Kansas performs on it. Gary Werkamp, the, the guitarist from Shadow Gallery, is on it. And I've had all of these CDs on my rack well before I started this project. Um, the way it came about is I've I've always been influenced by uh, various kinds of music, and it seemed to me that the people who listened to Rush and Kansas and Sticks and Pink Floyd and Tool and Dream Theater and all, all these kinds of music, the music is very much genre-oriented, science fiction and fantasy, and it seemed to me that the people who listen to that music like to read the kind of books that I write, and the the vice versa too. That the fans of the books that I write would like this kind of music, and it seemed natural to marry the two together. And the way the circumstances came about, a guy named Sean Gordon, who owns his own record label, Prog Rock Records, um, contacted me with just a fan letter on on MySpace, I think it was, and and we started corresponding and. Um, I sent him some signed books, and so he sent me some CDs from his label. He's got like a hundred artists signed up to his label, and I just um, just 
we talked on the phone. He came to one of my book signings, and we went out to dinner. And, and just sort of in a conversation, I said, wouldn't it be cool if, if as I'm developing some new book, and I didn't even know for sure if it was going to be this one, but wouldn't it be cool if we just did a book and a CD at the same time so it's not just somebody reads my book and writes a bunch of songs about it, that this was synergistically created the idea and and basically we sat down with a list of these are the people we'd love to have on the CD and who should play this and who should sing this and and every single person but one we had one person turn us down um, every single person but one said yes they love this thing and a lot of them turned out to be fans of mine so it was it was terrific that I could send them signed books and then they said sure we'll we'll sing on the on the album uh, the one the one guy who turned us down was Steve Walsh from Kansas, the lead singer from Kansas, and it wasn't that he wasn't interested. He he wrote that he thought it was a very cool project, but he had he basically retired. He's been been out of the business for a while. But um, but we got replaced him with John Payne from Asia. So I certainly that turned out as well as it could possibly be. Um, but the, the and so this album is is it available on iTunes oh yeah, or, on, or is it strictly on iTunes and Amazon? The, the super group that we put together, the name is called Roswell Six, and it's spelled out S I X. So you can just search for that on Amazon. We have um, on, on MySpace, it's myspace.com slash Roswell6, and there's, I think, five or six sample tracks up there, so you could just play those. There's some from James Labrie singing, some of Michael Sadler singing, some of Lana Lane, and some of uh, uh, John Payne. So you can get a real good flavor of it. But um, Bob Eggleton, who is one of the best-known science fiction artists, he's, I don't know, 20 Hugo Awards or something like that, uh, he provided... Uh, with a whole bunch of things to go inside of the CD booklet, and I, I wrote the connective narrative story that that goes in between the lyrics, so that you can read the through the booklet and listen to the songs, and you can get uh, the one storyline that's taken out of the edge of, edge of the world. And uh, so far, boy, in like three months, we got fifty thousand plays of the songs on MySpace, and uh, it's it's selling really pretty well. We went into a second pressing, pressing, I guess we call it in, in CDs. Uh, second pressing within a few weeks, and um, boy, the, the reviews have been great on it. We had one guy uh, say that he's been reviewing books for more than, reviewing CDs for more than a decade, and that this time for this CD was the first time he had ever given it a, a 10 out of 10 score. And we've got wow. lots of other great reviews like that. So we're uh, we're hoping it does well enough that we can pull off a second one. Like I like I like <laughs> great, being able to just to, to say I'm a record producer as well as uh, author. <laughs> not that I don't have enough credits as it you is. Can, you can add that to your resume. Yeah, not that I don't have enough credits as it is, but but still, it's kind of cool. Great. Well, your other new novel, Enemies and Allies, which has just been published, features the first meeting of Superman and Batman set against the 1950s Cold War backdrop. Um, on a personal note, I have a 22-month-old son, and one of his first words that he's enjoying saying is Batman. And I'm just curious if, you, if you've given much thought about the strong resonance and appeal that these characters, Superman and Batman, continue to have. And I was just curious, why do you think they've endured for so long in popular culture? Well, they've become icons more than, than um, just individual characters, I guess. And, boy, I, I don't know. I mean, Superman is true justice in the American way, and he's the... The, the ultimate rags to riches story. I mean, his whole planet blew up, and he's just stuck on the spaceship and thrown off to Earth. And and a uh, couple of salt of the earth people pick him up out of a field and raise him, and he becomes the greatest hero ever in, in, in our world. 
so I, I suppose that's something for your readers to look up to. Um, and Batman is kind of the other side of the coin. He's he's the dark and edgy guy who's haunted by his past, but he's able to uh, to take measures and do things that most of us would like to do, but but you can't because we don't have suits like that or we don't prowl around the alleys. But um, while Superman is the guy that that entirely trusts the system, he's the one that that would be you know like when Britney Spears says we should just trust the president because he's the president and he's the good guy. Um, that's what Superman thinks. I mean, he's he's up for the law is the law, and that we should just go to the authorities and and take care of that. Whereas Batman knows that the system isn't always as bright and shining as you would want it to be. That the Gotham City Police are probably as corrupt as the criminals are, and so he takes measures into his own hands. And you put the two of those together, the spectrum of being heroes, and that's why a story that that shows the first meeting of these two guys. With, they're both the good guys. They both have the same goal of stopping the bad guy, who's Lex Luthor, and saving the world from, from nuclear war, in, in this case. But they come at it from two different directions. I mean, the, um, it's, it's absolutely op- opposing what Superman wants to do and what Batman wants to do, even though they both want to uh, save the world. So it, it makes for some very interesting stuff. But uh, the other thing in the book is that I chose to set it in the 1950s during the Cold War instead of a modern-day uh, thing. I, to me, that that offered so much new nostalgic things to put in there, the, the fact that that's the era of the flying saucer craze, that that's when uh, the Cold War tensions were the highest, and, and uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had nuclear missiles pointed at each other. And uh, you'd, I mean, Bruce Wayne, the, the young, rich playboy who's all aloof all the time, likes to read the, the brand new novels by Ian Fleming about this guy named James Bond because he idolized James Bond. <laughs> and uh, Clark Kent loves getting the assignment from the Daily Planet to go off and look into the flying saucer reports because he's desperate to find out if there's any other Kryptonian survivors because he knows that there really are flying saucers and aliens on Earth, but Perry White doesn't believe it for a minute. And uh, It just gave me all kinds of interesting ways to tell the story where we're to set it in the modern day since, as you said, Batman and Superman have been around forever, I find it harder to to convince myself that I'm going to tell the story of the very first time Batman and Superman ever heard of each other and ever met if I said it in 2009, because you've got to scratch your head and think, well, where have you boys been all these years? Yeah, so that was another problem. Thanks for listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. We'll be back for more of our interview in just a moment. Do you like to write? Or have you always wanted to write, but decided that your job, your house, your family, your pets, your political affiliations, your volunteer work, your hobbies, your church, and that ache in your pinky you get on days ending in Y slow you down? Many professional writers have families. Many professional writers keep their day job. Many professional writers live their lives just like we do. Only, they write, too. Like you should be doing. I Should Be Writing is the award-winning podcast that explores issues wannabe writers come up against every day. Everything from characterization to just the difficulty in getting on a writing schedule. And because I, your host, am a writer who's still learning... We do a rundown of my progress as well. 
This is not a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do type of show. I'm there in the trenches with you. Visit IShouldBeWriting.com to subscribe to this free podcast and download past episodes. Because you should be writing. Sure, sure. I'm curious if you have any other projects in the work for... Um, for these comic book heroes, I know that you did an earlier Superman novel. Uh, yeah, well, previously I did one called The Last Days of Krypton, which was really a science fiction epic set on the planet Krypton during its uh, during its last days. I mean, this is Superman's right. father, Jor-El, the, the smartest scientist on the planet, the one who's saying the world's coming to an end and nobody believes him. So it's that story. Exactly. It's, it's 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 not people in a, in costumes flying around with superpowers because they're all on. Krypton. They're all like normal people there. But you also have um, General Zod leading his rebellion. You've got Brainiac stealing the city of Kandor and shrinking it down to fit inside a bottle. You have uh, Jor-El discovering the Phantom Zone. And, and um, it's his love story with Lara. And, and it answers all the, all the questions about <laughs> well, if this is the most advanced planet in 20 known galaxies, how come everybody happened to be home the day the planet blew up? And how come <laughs> only had walls, space on the, and why was it only baby size? Who builds a spaceship that's only baby size? Um, so I had to answer all those questions, and I did. I mean, I, that's that's how you tell a story. So to, to get around to answering your question, I mean, that I did the last days of Krypton, and then this has been two years later. Now it's enemies and allies. Um, DC usually calls me and says, "All right, let's let's figure out the next one." And, and we've talked about a couple of ideas, but uh, at the moment, there's nothing firmly in the works. I'm kind of uh, swallowed up, and I've got some more Dune books to write. I've got a new original trilogy with Brian Herbert, science fiction called Hellhole that I'm doing uh, with him, and I've got the other two Terra Incognita books to write, and I've got a young adult series with my wife. So it's uh, it's not like I'm sweating for looking so for work. Is full. So we'll we'll wait and see. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm I'm curious. There's been a lot of discussion recently, as there always seems to be, about the future of book publishing. Um, ebook sales are rising. Amazon has had success with its Kindle e-reader, and also the overall economy has impacted book sales. With your knowledge of the publishing industry, I'm curious where do you think publishing is headed in the near term, and I'm also curious where you think publishing is headed in the long term, say ten to twenty years down the road. Well, for I don't know how knowledgeable your your listeners are about the publishing industry, but uh, it's really a whacked out industry. That their business model is really crazy. It, it, that there's almost no way that they can make money at it because uh, all the paperback books that you see in a store that the books. Well, I've been explaining the whole thing here. But when a bookstore orders all these paperback books, it's on a complete, risk-free, fully returnable basis. So they can take. 50 copies of Stephen King's new paperback, and if they only sell 20 of them, then they literally tear the covers off of all of the extra 30 that they can't sell and return them to the publisher for full credit, and they throw away the rest of the book. It, it's like if you're a hardware store and you order 100 hammers and you can't sell them, so you break the handles off of the 80 you couldn't sell, and you get all your money back. And so what publishers have to do is print two, sometimes even three books in order to sell one because the returns are high or the, the, the sales are, aren't as fast as they expect. And in a, like in an airport or in a grocery store, those books are changed out 
sometimes hourly, sometimes daily, I mean, certainly no more than a week, that if they're not sold by then, they get thrown away and another one gets put on the shelf. So it's a very, um, there's more waste in the book business than there is on like a salad bar in a slow restaurant. And it's a business model that has long needed to be updated. Now with the economy going crazy and the publishers are, uh, they're laying off all kinds of people and they're, they're re- they reassess. It might be something that will change the way they do business. Now you mentioned the, the Kindle e-reader and everything, uh, well, and Amazon, and I'll, I'll do just Amazon first. It used to be that I would go drive into a bookstore and wander around and look for a new book by this guy or look for a nonfiction book about some subject I was interested in. But Amazon is so is so easy to use and so efficient that I can just search for an author and go, oh, I didn't even know this book was out, and just push a button and order it. I live out in the country. It's like a 20, 25-minute drive for me to get to my closest bookstore. So I don't just go there every day and look to see what new has shown up. But ordering online, and this isn't just Amazon. This could be BarnesandNoble.com or, or Borders.com or, or any other online bookstore. There's specialty stores, everything. The fact that I can just look at it, read the cover text, um, search for related books, try to, try to go into a random, say, Barnes & Noble, and ask the person there who's at the information counter, who's probably some some kid out of high school who hasn't worked another job and doesn't really like books anyway. You ask him, can you show me how to find a biography of T.E. Lawrence? And they'll give you this blank look, and they'll type something in and go, we don't have anything. And then you find that they spelled Lawrence wrong because they didn't ask you how to spell Lawrence. And you go, well, this is Lawrence of Arabia. You've heard of him. And he said, yeah, wasn't he in a movie once? Experience is why I can relate it in so much detail. And then you go home, and you log on <laughs> to one of the online bookstores, and you type in T.E. Lawrence, and suddenly you get the list of books by him and about him, and you can pick what you want and just order it, and, and it appears. So the... The idea of having to go to a bookstore to look around and pick up something that looks interesting, um, that is a big shift for me, at least, because I do all my browsing online. I'll look for different authors or titles or subjects, and and I'll just order them there. Um, I have a Kindle. I got one of the uh, first-generation Kindles, and I just love it because I travel around a lot, so I've got this little thing that weighs, I don't know how much it weighs, I mean, it it weighs about as much as a little magazine, and I can load whatever book I I want onto it, Um, I tend to read big, fat books, like a new Dan Simmons novel that's 800 pages long, or a new Peter F. Hamilton novel that's 800 pages long, or they're they're in hardcover, they they weigh many pounds. If I'm on a book signing tour and I'm away from home uh, for two weeks, I don't want to schlep the extra five or six pounds of hardcover book around with me every time that I, I get on a plane or lug it around. I want to have the little little Kindle, and I like the fact that I can um, just search immediately for some other books that this guy wrote if I happen to like what I'm doing. Um, but I don't understand how the business model... For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
works for them. They are selling a Kindle book, which is just, you know, electrons on your little Kindle screen. If I get that, I have to pay like $9.99 for it because that's what they charge for a Kindle book. And there are no material costs to it like there is when somebody prints a $27.95 hardcover. So it, it seems strange to me that they have to charge that much because there isn't the printing and shipping and returns and the waste and all that. So I don't know if $9.99 to me feels like it's an expensive price point when all I'm getting is a downloaded file. Um, I kind of like to have the physical book that I've read, too. So even if I don't, if I carry the Kindle with me to read it, I kind of like to have the actual hard copy that's here at home in case I need to. I like to read a book because I like the feel of the pages, although I'm getting to the point where I really uh, enjoy, re- <laughs> excuse me, enjoy reading it on a Kindle, too. But when I order a book from Amazon, if I new Peter F. Hamilton book, when I pay twenty seven ninety five for the hardcover book, I don't want to also have to pay ten bucks to get the electrons on my Kindle. I, I would like if you buy the book from Amazon that you can download it for free. Or I don't know if that's going to work or not. But but to me, it feels like wait a minute, I, I bought this book already, and I don't want to have to pay an extra ten dollars just so that I can have it onto this this platform. Of rambling around, I'm not giving you any solutions because I really don't know. Things are changing so fast. And um, I mean, look at somebody would have said uh, CDs were the new format for music, and it's astonishing how swiftly um, iTunes has taken over and MP3 downloads. And I'm kind of an old stick in the mud. I like to have my CD booklet with the lyrics and with the cover art and with the band picture and everything. I've uh, somebody gave me an iTunes gift certificate, so I downloaded some albums that I wanted, and then I burned them onto little CDRs that I have, but they don't feel like the real albums to me, because I don't have the booklet, and I don't have the uh, everything else, but on the other hand, I've got it all loaded onto my iPod anyway, and I take that around everywhere I go, so it's it's certainly... Yeah, it's it's definitely changing, and, and I think you're right in terms of the price point, and I think that that's something that... that um, Unfortunately, I think will cause a lot of pain for publishers as they adjust to the fact that um, most consumers, if they're using an electronic device, are not going to buy into a price point of $10, as you said, to download a file. Um, and so it, it will be interesting to see, you know, how that plays out on the back end in terms of royalties and 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 the basic cost structure for publishers. Well, and here's it. Um, I, I should just mention to you. I should just mention to you. If you hear something in the background, I'm in the middle of a lightning storm here, so my apologies. Okay, well, then it'll be even more exciting. But um, let me just give you a different. <laughs> this is a, a, a little kind of a tempest in the teapot that happened a couple of weeks ago on some of the writers' bulletin boards. That um, a person found out that. Um, he could only, if he bought a book on a Kindle, he, he paid to have it downloaded. Say he got Shogun for the Kindle, and he paid his nine ninety nine to get Shogun downloaded to his Kindle. And then he tried, then he got a Kindle too, so he had it transferred over to that. And then he wanted to transfer it over to his his iPhone, and then he put it on, you know, I don't know what else he put it on. But he discovered that Amazon put some limitation that you can only download the book from them for free five times onto five different platforms before they say, you know, sorry, you've used it up. You can't get it for free anymore. And there was this big uproar. Yeah, I, I actually read and that. You wrote that? 
No, no, I read that. that. Okay. I read that okay. this morning. I, I, yeah, it, it's it's interesting argument. I I wonder what will happen about that. Well, but here's, but but also, and I'm not sure. I, go I was going to say this. This is what. Here's the argument or the counter argument that I would have. That I I bought a copy of Dune in paperback when I was like 11 years old, and I read it. I read it a couple of times, and when it fell apart, I bought another copy of Dune, and I kept it and I highlighted it and underlined things, and then you know that one's. I've probably bought seven or eight copies of Dune over the years that I've dog-eared and underlined and things. In my mind, did it occur to me that when I was 11 years old, when I bought that one copy of Dune, that I was entitled to get free replacements for the rest of my life? <laughs> and to, to change that argument over a little bit differently, uh, a great Rush album, Rush 2112, one of their classic albums that they came out with, I bought it on vinyl in the 70s. Well, then I bought it again on on a cassette tape because I wanted to play it in my car and I had a cassette player. And I have since bought it again on CD format because now I have a CD player. Um, I actually have lost the CD, so I had to buy another one that's a replacement. When you buy something, when I buy an album by, by Rush, I don't assume that I get to have that for free in whatever format it ever gets existent in for the rest of my life. I mean, think of, answer the question yourself, how many different times have you bought the Star Wars movies? I mean, I bought them on, video, on VHS, exactly. and then I bought the special editions on VHS. I had a friend who bought them on Laserdisc. I bought them on DVDs, and now people are going to buy them on, on Blu-rays and Blu-ray. whoever, whatever's next. Each time, and I'm thinking like a creator now, a writer, artist, whatever, uh, if I was a member of the band Rush, they got royalties from me every time I bought the vinyl album. They got royalties again when I bought the cassette. But this, this guy on the Kindle who was squawking because he could only get it five times because he paid for it once, well, that doesn't wash with me. Because if you're the creator, every time somebody wants to use that on a different platform... I mean, the way our system is set up is you've got to buy it again. Now, if you're a consumer, I would yeah, like... exactly. You know, I mean, if I was a consumer, I would like to say, look, man, I paid seven ninety nine for that, that Rush Vinyl LP 2112 in the 70s, so I should just get my CD of it for free and my cassette of it for free and my... Uh, well, I mean, I get the MP3 because I can load the CD into my, my computer, but you know what I'm saying. Sure, I mean, that, that's sure. not the way. That's not the way our society works, that you can't just... Well, look for that. We were talking earlier, uh, just before you started recording, that I had gone to see the new Transformers movie this afternoon. So I've got my movie ticket, but I went to see the matinee of Transformers 2. So does that mean I get a free DVD copy of the movie when it comes out? Because, hey, I've already paid to see the movie, so I should get it whatever format it comes out. That that doesn't wash with me. That's not the way it should be. And so these the, the people that say, wait, I paid for it once, they should keep getting it forever and ever, no matter what format it comes in. Uh, I I don't buy their logic. Sure, I I I I totally understand, and I'm not sure if anybody left in the comments to that blog posting that that the guy did that Apple has had a similar system in place pretty much since they opened the iTunes Store, and if I'm not mistaken, you can authorize either four machines or five machines. Um, for your iTunes uh, to play. And, and after that, I mean, 
if you want to use it on another machine, you have to deauthorize one that you've already authorized, if that makes sense. So um, well, and, there's and certainly actually, a, a... That's actually changed a little bit because I, I, had, I had an iPod and I had everything loaded, loaded onto it. Uh, and it was also loaded onto my computer because that's how I put all my CDs in. So I put them on the iPod. And then I had a hard drive crash. So I had, they had to entirely replace the, um, the hard drive. And I wanted to download all my music back off of the iPod onto the computer. And, and we had to go to like the Apple store to get it done so that they went through the security procedures and authorized me to put it on. And I kept saying, well, these are my CDs. I bought them. This is my iPod. I should be able to put them back into the computer. <laughs> and, and it, didn't, well, I mean, from the same argument, though, I could just be handing you, Jeff Rutherford, here's my iPod so you can copy all my music onto your, yeah, onto exactly, your computer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. Let me just this, this one thing. Here's the real tipping point that's going to be happening in the next, probably in the next five years, because we really are at this crucial emergency point. We don't quite know what to do with copyright anymore because... The cost is that you own the, the content, that when you're, theoretically, when you're buying a book, you're not buying the physical book, you're buying the right to read the content that's on the inside of it. And with the way the web is, is speeding up, the way technology is speeding up, that people are finding ways to copy and not pay for material faster than anyone can react to it to make it fair in the marketplace. And... Yes, there's a there's a thing like if I bought the music and I downloaded it onto my iPod and my iPod crashes, I shouldn't have to pay for it again. But the the whole you remember the the Napster flap, but and I didn't buy that argument for a nanosecond. Although they were with a straight face saying, "Well, I'm just I bought the music once and I'm loaning it out to fifty thousand of my friends." Well, come on, guys, that's the dumbest argument in the world. And and you know as much as I love writing. And I really love writing. If I was on a desert island, I'd probably be scratching stories into the sand, even if the tide washed it away every day. But that is how I make my living. And to say that 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 your writing should be just free for everybody, the same argument is, is like saying, well, food should be free for everybody, so why pay the farmers anything? You should just be able to walk in and steal everything. That's that's not the way you're supposed to be doing things, because if you, if you want your favorite artist to continue to make then you can't just steal the music because why is he going to bother doing it? We have one of the guys on our Roswell 6 CD his name is Martin Orford and he was with the prog rock band called IQ which was a pretty popular band and Jadis was another one of his bands they're fairly popular but uh, in in the early 2000s he retired from music very publicly because he looked into it and said, well, wait a minute, half of the copies that are going out are being stolen. So why should I bother to even do all this work if people are going to steal half of my work? So he retired. He said he's never going to record again because of that. So all the fans of his music lost out on further music from him because other fans have stolen his work. And he came out of retirement because he thought the Terran Cognita CD was such a cool idea, so he played flute on our CD. But, um so I'm, I'm obviously on a soapbox and kind of ranting here, but, but that's what people don't realize is if they're stealing these, these things, they might be getting a free CD or they might be getting a free ebook, but you get to this point where the artist who spends all of his time and effort creating it 
is going to say, why bother? Because I'm not making any money off of this, and I'm not a charity thing. Why should I just do this and have people rip me off all the time? So it is going to backfire on, on you guys who, who are stealing music and, and books and things because some of your favorite art, I, I guess Gene Simmons from recording. It was many, many years before he came out with a new one because he was so um, upset at all the, the thievery. So you're, you're losing out on some of the new stuff that you love so much you're stealing it. So so there you go. Good good points there. Um, I'm, I'm curious, over the years you've participated in the annual Writers of the Future workshop and the annual paperback anthology Writers of the Future, and I know you've spoken to many aspiring writers over the years. Um, since we have been going for a while now, I wondered if you had to, to, to boil down your basic advice for someone who wants to make a living writing fiction, what are the one or two basic rules that you would tell them to, to follow in terms of uh, their career? Well, first off, I would say that you need to be persistent and to think about it as uh, there is no shortcut. If you're trying to become a, a best-selling author or, or even an author who's just making a living at it, uh, it's really, really and truly the equivalent of trying to get a slot on, say, a professional baseball team or on, on an Olympic team for something. That uh, It's not just like getting a job that everybody else has, that the competition is incredibly fierce. The, the bookstore is, is loaded with people who are trying to get you to, to buy their books. So you can't just say, I've made up my mind to be an Olympic ice skater today. I'm going to go out. Why won't they have me on the team? It, it's Most of the Olympic ice skaters have started they were children. Stop practicing, and they keep going to tournaments, and they keep going to, to um, competitions, and sometimes they win and sometimes they lose, but they always get better, and they keep trying. And even... After all that, they still might not get to make the team, or even if they make the team, they might not win a medal. So think of a writing career that way, that you are, you're, you're trying out for a professional team of some kind, and it's going to take a lot of practice and a lot of hard work. And if you do happen to make the team and you start publishing things, to have a career as a writer, you really have to treat it as a job. I mean, don't, don't, take it the way you see authors portrayed on TV as they like flit around and wait for the muse to strike them and they'll write a sentence a day or something. This is your job. If a, if a banker wanted to go in for work 20 minutes a, a day and go home because he's not inspired to do his work, he'd get fired. And you have to treat your own career as a professional because it's a real job. You have to spend uh, time and work at it and uh, you have to treat yourself as a professional. So I hope they haven't scared everybody gotcha. away. <laughs> um, in, a, in addition to, to you know, your advice regarding persistence, I, I'm curious about your productivity. As I mentioned in this interview, and anyone who has followed your career knows, you're a prolific writer, often with multiple novels or projects in the works at, at one time. I wondered if over the years you've developed any specific time management or productivity tips that have enabled you to to manage your time and work. Well, one of the things that helps a lot is that I really enjoy writing. I mean, I, I would rather be writing than just about anything else. And I, I work on it all day long, basically seven days a week, 365 days a year. I've always got to get some writing done or editing or, or an interview or something or other. Um, but one of my real creative productivity things is that I've taught myself how to write uh, by dictating into a recorder. And I, I live in Colorado. I've got zillions of hiking trails all over the place. 
and I just love to go out into beautiful weather and, and just walk up in the mountains, walk by the streams and waterfalls, or climb a 14,000-foot peak, or go into the canyons, or the Indian ruins, or whatever, and, and I can be walking and hiking, which I love to do, and dictating a story, which I also love to do, and uh, to me, that just really helps me get a lot more work done, and uh, that's that's my main key, I guess, is, is loving what I'm doing, and I've found a way to work so that I get a lot of work done. I mean, that that's a... Um, to go off on a tangent maybe that that's a real key thing for productivity is that you have to figure out an environment where you can be really productive and uh, and for everybody that's different i know some people that just get energized by sitting in a coffee shop and writing other people need to have just so there's a, a pin drop so if that figure out how you do your best work some people love to work at two in the morning when it's utterly quiet and dark outside and other people are just energized with their first cup of coffee in the morning and you need to figure that out for yourself what what is the best way that you can write and once you figure that out if, if the best way for you to write is to be sitting with your iPod earphones on in a Starbucks with people going on all around you but you can still focus then go to the Starbucks with your iPod and do that every day so that's the way you get your work done if your best writing is at 2 in the morning well then try to arrange your schedule so that you can write every morning at 2 in the morning and I mean, it would kill me to write at 2 in the morning because I'm not a nighttime person. And it would kill my wife to write at 7.30 in the morning because she's not a morning person. And you have to identify that for yourself in order to figure out which way you could be the most productive. Right, right. Um, I'm I'm curious about your, your use of a, a digital recorder. I'm, I'm wondering at the beginning when you first started doing that, um, did it take you... Uh, a while to kind of get used to to dictating fiction. Well, it took me a while, but I didn't start out doing that right away. I would, if I was having trouble figuring out where a story was going or trying to get the character background or something, uh, I would, I'd like to just go out for a walk. And I go out for a walk and just sort of let my my imagination flow, and I would then I'd come up various ideas, and then I'd be a mile or two away from home, and I'd have to turn around and run back home so I could write them all down. And I decided that was not a very efficient way of doing it. So I started carrying a, a micro-cassette recorder at the time so that I could just dictate notes. I could talk about, you know, here's the character, or here's something that happened to him, or, or setting up a scene or, or something. And I got to the point where I really liked doing that, mapping things out while I was walking. And I started outlining that way, and the outlines became, for instance, I was doing for one of my Star Wars books, I think, of this huge space battle that I was trying to choreograph it. So I was just talking at the, this happened, and then this happened, and this this happened, and then this part. And it got so that I was realizing that I was pretty much doing a first draft of the chapter, and that led into me really doing the first draft of a chapter. And, and now it's almost a daily routine for me where I'll go out in the morning and I'll dictate probably two chapters or so, and then come back in. Tomorrow morning I'm going to go for a 10-mile hike uh, and I'm going to probably do four or five chapters during that hike and it'll be a very productive day and I get to do a 10-mile hike. And what are you working on tomorrow? um, I'm working on the book called Hellhole, which is my original science fiction thing with Brian Herbert. So we've done 11 Dune books in a row now we're doing an original series. Well, that kind of leads into my final question. As we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about what you're working on now. 
I uh, mentioned Winds of Dune earlier, which will be published in August. What other books are on the horizon for you? Well, the, the Winds of Dune is, is the direct sequel to Dune Messiah. So the people who've read the original Frank Herbert books can jump right into this one. It goes right to the core of the uh, the characters and things that everybody um, loved about Dune in the first place. Um, I've just finished writing the manuscript of book two in Terra Incognita called The Map of All Things. And so I'm doing the final touches on, on tweaking that. And just two days ago, I started writing my first chapters in Hellhole. So I, I try to keep things going in, in different stages so that I can continue to do all the fun stuff. And uh, let's see, my, my wife Rebecca and I are going to be doing a, a young adult series based on the that focuses on the space program. We'll be doing that probably in fall. Um, so that's pretty much what we're keeping busy with right now. But uh, I, I think i got to start really considering writing the next uh, Roswell 6 music CD to go with the next Terra Cognita book. And uh, that's a call I'm going to have to make tomorrow to do some brainstorming with Eric Norlander, the guy who wrote the music. And So it's always one thing after another, but uh, starting in mid-July, I, I have a whirlwind of travel coming up. I've got a convention appearance in Omaha, Nebraska for one weekend. We're going to be at the San Diego Con five days the weekend after that, and then um, August 5th, 3rd or 4th, I don't know which day it is, but where Brian Herbert and I are going off to the East Coast to do a two-week-long book signing tour for the Winds of Dune. So not a whole lot of writing is going to get done over the course of that month, but uh, it's all writing-related because we've got to work on selling the books. If nobody buys the books, then they don't ask us to write the next one. So keeping busy. Well, great. It sounds like you're going to be busy. But I'm, I'm enjoying it, so I'm not having any qualms about it at all. Well, great. Well, well, thanks a lot for taking the time to, to speak with us. All right. Well, I hope it's a good podcast for you. I enjoyed it, and and uh, I hope that I have not confused or, or depressed too many people with all my ramblings on the book business. But it, it's a fun career, and I really enjoy it, and uh, I'm glad the readers like to read this stuff. Thanks for listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my latest interview. If you would like to leave me some feedback or have a comment on the show, I would love to get your voicemail. You can leave me a voicemail at 206-888-2731. Again, that's 206-888-2731. Also, if you enjoyed listening to this interview, you can subscribe to the feed for the podcast on iTunes. And if you really enjoyed it, I would love for you to leave me a comment in iTunes so that other people can discover the podcast in the iTunes store. It's very simple. You go to the iTunes store and leave a, a review. Thanks again, and we'll be back in two weeks with another interview with a writer that you enjoy reading. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.